Good morning, my friends. It's a great joy to be gathered with you again for worship today. Uh, I hope you've been uplifted and you have been encouraged and you've learned a lot from our Friday and our Saturday evening services during our meeting this week. But I want to remind you that today is different. Right now is different because the purpose of our worship this morning is to remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is no ordinary day. This is the Lord's day. And as the Apostle John wrote, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I hope that uh, you find yourself in the same spirit, spirit of recognition that we're here for this special purpose. For our study to, to introduce our study this morning, I want to read from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. And if you have your Bible uh, in the pew or on, the, on your phone or whatever the case is, I'd invite you to turn along and to read with me from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. I've also got it up on the screen here. The Bible says, Then indeed... Even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlain on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it all were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went first, uh, always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. Not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Now, friends, some of what I just read may have made no sense to you whatsoever. I may as well have been speaking a foreign language. And don't feel bad if that's the case, because what is being talked about here in Hebrews chapter 9 is an ancient religious system which really has not been practiced in over 2,000 years. You've never seen in person what the writer of Hebrews is talking about right now. And so today we're going to kind of have to go to spiritual kindergarten, so to speak, to understand these things. But as we read the Old Testament and as we examine the connections between the Old Covenant system 
and the Christian system that we are under today, you're going to see an incredible picture being painted, an incredible tapestry being woven together here of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we study some truths from the tabernacle. I have to admit that this sermon which I'm going to preach did not originate with me. In fact, it's actually one of the oldest in the Christian faith. Just a few years ago, some archaeologists unearthed an Egyptian burial mask that was made out of paper. And when they took it apart to analyze what it was constructed out of, they found some second century Bible manuscripts, one of which was sermon notes from the first century on Hebrews 9, 10, and 11. So this is a sermon that's been preached for a very, very long time. And the reason it's survived is because it makes plain some very difficult things. It takes some very challenging and hard questions and explains them by drawing a simple picture. Now, first of all, what exactly is the tabernacle? I think a lot of people uh, may not be familiar with this word. If you aren't familiar with it, don't feel bad because it's sort of an archaic word. Um, but maybe you've been to one of the gospel meetings, such as Sulphur, Oklahoma, or Chapel Grove, Tennessee, where they have the meeting under a tabernacle. And if that's the case, you understand what a tabernacle is. In its most basic form, a tabernacle is a structure or a shelter or a tent. But I want you to know that the tabernacle of the Old Testament was no ordinary tent. In fact, it was something utterly unique in history. When the Israelites were set free from Egyptian slavery and they passed through the midst of the Red Sea, God brought them out into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And when they arrived, the Lord came down from heaven and he settled on that mountain in a terrible and an awe-inspiring display of fire and smoke. And then speaking in a voice like the roar of mighty oceans, he communicated the Ten Commandments, his covenant he was going to have with this people, the children of Israel. Well, you know, the presence of God was so dreadful, the children of Israel actually ran away, and they asked Moses to go up on their behalf and to meet with God to receive the covenant. And this was acceptable. So Moses climbed atop the mountain, and he spent 40 days with God receiving the various laws and ordinances of the Old Covenant system. But actually, the majority of the time he spent there with God was dedicated to receiving the plans for this tent, how it would be furnished, how worship would be conducted, how the priesthood would be set up, and so forth. Now, throughout uh, the Bible, this tent has had many different names. It's been called the sanctuary, the holy, the tabernacle of the congregation, the tabernacle of witness and testimony, 
the house of God. And the prophet Samuel even called it the palace of God. And all these names help communicate to us the deep spiritual and religious significance that this tent had for the ancient people of God. And as we study the tabernacle, you're going to learn a fundamental truth about all matters of religious and spiritual significance. And that is when God has a plan for something and he wants mankind to be involved in his plan, he tells people exactly what to do and how to do it. He gives very meticulous plans with no liberty or room for improvisation. He's very specific and meticulous with his instructions. And that's because these are important to God. And the tabernacle was no different. The tabernacle was going to be his house on earth, the place where God would accept worship from men and where he would deliver instructions to them. And so three times during this 40-day period, God said this to Moses, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. God said there's a pattern. There's a blueprint. There are instructions to follow. And you know, God has always worked this way throughout history. When God told Noah to build an ark, he gave the exact dimensions and specifications for that uh, vessel. When Moses uh, or when God told Moses and the Jews to build this tabernacle, he gave them a blueprint to follow. And when God sent the apostles into the world to establish churches of Christ, he gave them a pattern to preach and to teach to every disciple. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, uh, Paul, when he wrote to Corinth, he said, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And then concerning the ordinance of communion, he said in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And so this is why we need to listen to the apostles and what they have to say, because they got their teaching from the Lord. And their purpose was to then communicate that pattern to us. When it comes to religious matters, God always tells us what he wants us to do and how he expects us to do it. Now, let's keep that in mind as we continue our study. Now, as we talk about the tabernacle and we look at the different elements of the building itself, you're going to notice some very interesting groups of three that creates some natural divisions in the tabernacle. Now, first of all, there were three different areas, starting with the outer court. The outer court wasn't really part of the building itself, but it was this yard uh, on the outside. It was fenced in by a 150 by 75 cubit wall. And for clarity, we're just going to say feet instead of cubits because we understand what feet are a little better. This wall was made of a fine linen curtain suspended by bronze pillars set in bronze sockets. And there was only one entrance 
and it always faced to the east. Now within the court was the tabernacle proper, and it was 45 feet long by 15 feet wide. And the foundation was 100 blocks of silver, which each weighed about 114 pounds. So you're talking about a foundation made up of 11,400 pounds of silver. The structure of the building was uh, boards of acacia wood that were coated in gold. And they were 15 feet long and 2 feet 3 inches wide. Now, like we mentioned earlier, God was very specific about even the dimensions of the boards of wood going into his house. He was very particular about his instructions. As you can see in the picture here, there were 50 boards total, 20 on each side, 6 on the back end, and 2 at each corner. And on the bottom of each board were a couple of pegs, which set into sockets in the silver foundation. On top of each board, there was a gold ring, and through this ring, they would run a cord, which was tightened to hold the boards taut and secure. So you can see this was quite a sturdy structure when it was all set up. Now, the outer court was open air, but the tabernacle itself had four roofs. The first roof was ten curtains of fine linen in alternating colors of blue and scarlet and purple and decorated all over with pictures of angelic beings called cherubim. And these curtains were fastened together with clasps to create what was called the first veil. You can see there it made up the door of the tabernacle. The second covering was 11 curtains of goat hair. The third was ram skin dyed red. And as for the fourth covering, well, scholars are a little divided. The words, a little ambiguous. It might either be dolphin skin or badger skin. Now, the first option is certainly more interesting, but the latter is probably more likely. The tabernacle building contains the two other areas. Now, in our reading, they were called the first part and the second part, but you probably know them as the holy place and the most holy place. The holy place was this first section. It was 30 feet long, and dividing the two of these was the second veil and then the most holy place, which was 15 feet Square. The second veil was again a very heavy and substantial piece of fabric, also colorful and covered with angelic figures. This was a truly magnificent and a beautiful building. In fact, people have estimated it would take $550 million to reconstruct this building according to all the proper specifications. So we have our three areas, the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place. And in these different areas, you would find three different classes of people. In the outer court, uh, that was open to everyone. Anyone could come and go and see the worship taking place. But not just anybody could go into the holy place. Only priests could go in there. And that's what the writer of Hebrews said in our reading. The priests went always into the first part of the tabernacle. 
Now, in the ancient days of religion, a priest was somebody who offered prayers and sacrifices on your behalf. And when God selected the Israelites as his chosen people, he specified that the sons of Aaron from the tribe of Levi would be priests for everyone else, the whole nation. And they were the only people who were allowed to go into the holy place of the tabernacle. There's one more person here, and that's the high priest. There's a little picture of him down in the corner there. And as we read before the prayer, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would pass through the veil into the most holy place with the blood of atonement for his sins and for the sins of the people. So we have three areas and three classes of people. There were also three sources of light. That outer courtyard didn't have a roof, so it was illuminated by the sun. But the sunlight didn't reach into the holy place on account of all those curtains and roofs. It was shut out. The only light in the holy place came from the golden candlestick. Now this golden candlestick was made of solid beaten gold and weighed about 114 pounds. And it was crafted to look like a budding almond tree. It's quite beautiful. All of the utensils for maintaining this lamp were also made of gold. This light from the lampstand illuminated the holy place, but it did not reach into the most holy place because of that second veil separating the two areas. The only light in the most holy place came from the presence of God. God would appear there in a shining cloud of glory that the Hebrews called the Shekinah. And that's what illuminated the most holy place. So we have three areas and three classes of people and three sources of light. There's also three groups of furniture. Starting out in the courtyard, we have the brazen altar. It was called that because it was made of wood, but it was coated and overlain with brass. And the brass was thick enough to protect it from the sacrifices and the offerings that were constantly being burned on top of it. It had four horns, one on each corner, which represented the power of God. And there were fire, uh, fire pans and grates and shovels and hooks, all made of bronze as well. Now, as we mentioned earlier, only the sons of Aaron could become priests. But you weren't born as a priest. You had to be consecrated as a priest. And consecration began here at this altar. The man who would become a priest, he would come to the altar and an animal would be killed as a substitute for his sins and then its body would be burned on the altar. Now after this, the man would go to the next piece of furniture called the laver. And the laver was a large bronze basin full of water. And during his consecration, the man would get in the laver and he would wash. Now it's very interesting, when the New Testament talks about this washing, it describes it as baptism, it uses the same word, baptism. 
he was baptized in the laver. And that's confirmed by ancient Jewish writings. They said the priest would have to be completely immersed in order to purify his body and to prepare him for his priestly duties. Now, once he came up out of that water, he would put on the clean white garments of his office and he would pass through the first veil into the sanctuary and begin his priestly service. He had several duties to attend to. One of them was to trim that golden candlestick and to keep it burning constantly. He also tended to the table of showbread. This table was also wood overlain with gold. And on the table were 12 cakes of unleavened bread, just like we're going to partake of in the Lord's Supper later, except there were 12 of them instead of just one. One loaf for each tribe of Israel. And every Sabbath day, the priests would eat these cakes. Now, in front of that veil, there was also the altar of incense, again, made of acacia wood coated in gold. This altar stood about three feet high, and like the brazen altar, it had four horns on the corners, but you didn't burn animals on this altar. You burned incense. Now, when you read the Old Testament, it's very clear that this altar was in the holy place. But when you read Hebrews, the writer describes this altar as if it's in the most holy place. And that's because while the altar itself was in the holy place, its function reached into the most holy place. You see, the priest would stand at this altar and he would offer prayers to God. But he couldn't see God on account of that thick curtain, the second veil, which separated him from the most holy place. But when he prayed, he would burn incense. And this incense would fill the room and the cloud of smoke would drift beyond the curtain into the presence of God. And so the function of this altar bridged the divide between the holy place and the most holy place. On the other side of that curtain, we have the Ark of the Covenant, that great golden box inside which were three symbols of Israel's sin. And over the top of those symbols of sin was a great golden lid called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where the high priest would smear the blood of atonement so that God could come down and have fellowship with his people. There's much more we could say about that, but what you need to know is this right here is where God would manifest his presence to his people. So we've got these three areas, three classes of people, three sources of light, and finally, three groups of furniture. And this gives you a pretty clear picture of the tabernacle and how it functioned. But I want to explain what all this means for us because, friends, this isn't just a history lesson. This has actual application to your life today. As we read in our reading, the Bible says that the tabernacle has symbolic meaning for the present time. Hebrews 9, 24, the writer says that this tabernacle was a figure of the true. 
in Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10, it says there was a problem with the earthly tabernacle. And that was that the functions of the earthly tabernacle never fully eased the consciences of God's people back then. It was inadequate. The things going on here were pointing forward to something more true and more real. What we have here is a lesson in type and anti-type, in shadow and substance. These elements of the tabernacle are picturing something in the New Testament. And in fact, we can take the gospel in the New Testament and we can overlay it with this picture from the Old Testament and it matches up perfectly. The key to unlocking this symbolism here is to figure out what the holy place is supposed to be a picture of. Now we know the most holy place is heaven because the Bible tells us that in Hebrews 9 verse 12 and verse 24. So what is the holy place? Well, friends, I submit to you the holy place is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. And I want to give you some evidence to support that. In Hebrews 8 verse 2, the writer says that this room was a picture of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Now, what did Jesus build when he was here on the earth? I'm not aware of anything that Jesus built except for his church, as Matthew 16, verse 18 says. I don't know of anything else that he built except the church. Hebrews 9, verse 11 says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. You know, that phrase, not made with hands, reminds me of Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, where the kingdom of Christ was pictured as a stone cut out of the side of a mountain, not with hands. It was something God created and not man. Later on, we read in 1 Timothy 3.15, the Apostle Paul says that today the house of God is the church of the living God. And that's what the tabernacle was. It was the house of God. And so it was a symbol or a picture, an illustration of the church. Now, if the holy place is the church, then the courtyard must represent the place that we leave to come into the church. And that's the world. Remember, in John 15, verse 19, Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus created a church from those who come out of the world. So we've got the world, we've got the church, and we've got heaven. God's saving, life-giving presence is inside, but the people are on the outside, separated from him by their sins. So how do you get inside? How do you come into the church from the world? You do it the same way that 
the priest would come from the court into the holy place. Remember, not just anyone could go into the sanctuary. You had to be a priest. Now, what was a priest a picture or a symbol of? Well, friends, the Bible says that priests were symbolic of Christians, all Christians. 1 Peter 2, verse 5 and verse 9 says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a wonderful picture. Did you ever think about that? You as a Christian are a priest. You're the embodiment. You are the true fulfillment of that priesthood of old. In fact, Romans 12 verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, who offered sacrifices? That was the priesthood. And we as priests present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. Friends, do you ever have trouble acting as you should, acting righteously as a Christian? Maybe it will help to think of yourself as a priest consecrated in God's service. That can help motivate you to live righteously. Here's one more verse. Revelation 1 verses 5 and 6 says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now this passage gives us a clue as to how you become a priest. Because remember, uh, you don't become a priest because of who you were born as, uh, who your father was. There's a part of that old symbolic priesthood, uh, part of that old priesthood which was symbolic of how we become priests. Remember, in order for an Israelite to become a priest, you had to be consecrated by a sin offering at the altar. And that's true of you and I as well. We cannot become priests unless a sin offering is made for us. But I've got some fantastic news, friends. It's already been taken care of because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the altar, the sacrifice, and the high priest who made the sacrifice because Jesus sacrificed himself. Listen to Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27. It says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. Thank God Jesus Christ came and offered himself as the perfect sin sacrifice for our behalf. Jesus sanctifies us as priests with his own blood.
Now remember, the writer said that that old system was lacking partially because it provided fleshly purity. It rolled the sins back every year, but it couldn't cleanse the conscience. People couldn't see how offering animal sacrifices absolved them of sin. Jesus is the fulfillment because his sacrifice is so superior. Not only does it really cleanse us ceremonially, it makes us pure, but it can present us with clean consciences before God. Now, just as the Levite could only come into the sanctuary by the blood of a sin offering on the altar, we can only come into the church, the house of God today, by the blood of Jesus offered on the cross. Now, the Levites accepted that sacrifice physically in front of the altar, but we accept the sacrifice of Jesus through faith. As the Bible says in Romans 3, verses 24 and 25, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Friends, that's a beautiful picture, but I want you to see something here. The process is not complete at the altar. Leaving the world and entering the church isn't finished with the sacrifice of Jesus or even with faith. That's because there was another step, wasn't there? That labor where a man would come and be purified through immersion in water. And he came up out of that water clean. And then he was ready to be a priest. Now, friends, is there anything that looks like that in the gospel? Is there anything that looks like immersion in water for purification, for the remission of sins? Friends, how about baptism? That's exactly what the Bible says about baptism. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16 16. Now, friends, I want you to look at this picture. I told you it, it would fit so simply and so perfectly. The brazen altar is a picture of faith in Jesus Christ. The laver is a picture of baptism. And the holy place is a picture of the church. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. It's so simple. It's so easy to see when you look at the picture God has painted on the pages of history. And in fact, surely the Hebrew writer had this in mind when he wrote in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, you can only have a body cleansed pure and a, and a conscience sprinkled clean through baptism. That's the assurance that you have that you have been washed and purified and sanctified before God. 
In Titus 3, 5, the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul called baptism the washing of regeneration. And the word washing there, that's the same Greek word for labor. It's no wonder that Paul had this in mind because when the gospel was preached to him, in Acts 22, 16, the preacher said, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Just as those priests would put on the clean white robes, the Bible says that when we are baptized, we put on Christ. Galatians, 1, uh, Galatians 3, 27. That old lifestyle of sinful living is traded for a new life of holiness and righteousness. We put it on as if putting on clean white garments. When the Levites put on his white robes, he was ready to leave the courtyard and to go into the holy place. And when we put on Christ through baptism, the Bible says we are translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's love. Now, once we're in the church, we have some wonderful blessings and we also have some important responsibilities too. In the church, we have one source of light. That golden candlestick that was pictured so long ago is a symbol of the Word of God. The Word of God is our light. That's why the psalmist wrote, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, verse 105. There's only one source of truth and light, and that's the Word of God. The Bible, the inspired scriptures. We don't need councils. We don't need popes. We don't need creeds. We don't need any additional revelation or instruction. We've got it right here in the Bible. We have all that we need. Now, there was also that table of showbread where the priests would eat the 12 cakes symbolizing the 12 tribes. And surely that is a picture of the communion of the saints. And what a marvelous parallel there is between that table and this table right here. On the table of the Lord, we have not 12 loaves, but one picturing Jesus and his sacrifice. Paul said that though there are many of us, we are one body because we all share of that one loaf. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. We don't partake every Sabbath day, but we do it on the first day of the week, the day of Jesus' resurrection, Acts 20, verse 7. Finally, there's the altar of incense. The Bible tells us in Revelation 5, 8 and 8, 3, that the altar was a symbol of the prayers of God's people. Now, when we pray, we're just like that priest, aren't we? We, we are speaking and crying out to a God that we cannot see because we're separated by the veil. The veil of flesh. Sometimes that can make it hard to pray, can't it? But take comfort in God's picture. Because when you pray, your prayers, like the smoke from that altar, drift up and past the veil separating you into the very presence of God. Your prayers bridge the gap between earth 
and heaven. In prayer, you get as close to the heavenly realm that you can in your present state of humanity. Is it any wonder that Jesus so often took time to pray while he was here on the earth? That's as close as you can get to the Father in this body. What an awesome privilege it is to pray. Friends, don't ever take prayer for granted. There's the type and the anti-type, the shadow and the substance, the picture and the reality. Now, I want to tie everything together for you. As I told you, I want to show you how you can take this picture and you can give simple answers to some of the most difficult and challenging questions facing believers today. Issues that have divided believers for centuries could be put to rest if we would just look at the picture God has illustrated and let it lead us to the simple truth. One of the great questions of history has been, should we baptize infants? And you know, there are many large and prominent religious groups that practice infant baptism. But I want you to look at the picture right here. In this picture, we have faith before baptism. Now, you can't have that with infant baptism because an infant can't have faith. So to baptize an infant, you have to take the laver and you have to move it over in front of the altar. Friends, you've got to rearrange God's furniture. Now, you can't do that. That's the ultimate sign of disrespect. If you invited me into your house and I decided to begin rearranging your furniture, throwing out chairs and bringing in tables and couches as I desired, I wouldn't be welcome in your house for very long. It's your house. You get to choose how you arrange it. Friends, it's the same way with God's house. You can't rearrange God's furniture. Infant baptism does not fit the plan. It doesn't fit the picture. Here's another question. Should we baptize sinners or Christians? Should we baptize lost people who want to be saved? Or should we baptize saved people to show that they're already saved? Does it even make a difference? Well, let's take a look. The outer court is the world where lost sinners are. And the holy place is is the church. Now, where did God put baptism, friends? Did he put it in here with the saved? No. It's out here with the lost. And that's because baptism is for lost sinners so that they can become clean and purified and therefore eligible to enter in to God's house. To have baptism for saved people you have to rearrange God's furniture. You have to move the laver into the holy place. And friends, that won't do. As popular of a doctrine as that is today, it doesn't fit the picture that God painted in the gospel. How about another one? Can you pray your way into salvation and bypass baptism altogether? You hear a lot about that today in the form of the sinner's prayer. But we've got a problem because the altar of incense is a picture of prayer. And it's not out here with the world. It's in the church 
It's a privilege for the saved. It's a right that is given to those who are in the kingdom, in God's house, not the lost. The sinner's prayer does not fit the picture. Friends, one more. Do you have to be in the church to go to heaven? That's a difficult question, isn't it? Let's look at the picture. The outer court is the world. That's where people are when they sin and they break God's law. The most holy place is heaven, where God is. And the holy place is the church. Friends, we've established all of that through God's word. How do you get from here in the courtyard to there, the holiest, the presence of God? You've got to go through there. There's no other way. There's no other entrance. The picture that God drew on the canvas of history to illustrate and to make plain and simple the gospel shows there's no other way to get from the world to heaven except through the church of Jesus Christ. And friends, that's why we take it so seriously. That's why the church is such a vital part of the gospel. That's why we're trying to tell everybody they need to get in the church because that's the only way. We've got to do everything we can to tell people about it. You can see how this picture takes so many difficult things and it makes them so simple. Friends, there's also some profound symbolism here to think about. This tabernacle was eventually replaced with the temple, but they shared the same design. And you might remember that when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that he died at about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And as this happened, the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place ripped in two from top to bottom. Now that's significant because at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, there would have been a priest standing right there offering the evening prayers in front of that veil. Now can you imagine the shock that that man experienced when this veil that separated him from the forbidden chamber, if he went inside, he would be struck dead by God. All of a sudden is torn open. And for the first time, he can look in there and he can see into the throne room of God. And the Bible says that this event symbolized how Jesus opened the way to heaven through his death on the cross. Friends, that would have been an amazing thing to be in the shoes of that priest and to stand where he stood and to see that veil ripped open. But you know, the Bible says that someday Jesus is going to return. And when he does, he's going to rip open the veil, the veil of time and space, which is separating us from God. And we'll be able to look up and see into the throne room of God. And not only that, but go up there and be with him in his presence forever. But only if we're like that old priest. Only if we are found serving in the holy place, the church. Only then 
can we pass through the veil into the presence of our Creator? Friend, if Jesus came back right now, would you be found serving in the house of God? And I'm not saying would he find you at church this morning. Not would he find you at worship services. Would he find you serving in the church, in the house of God? Would he find you as one of those priests? Would he look at your life and find it clean and white and spotless? Would he find it a living sacrifice as Romans described? Friends, the only way to don those priestly garments to be found serving is as we talked about. It's to be sanctified and to be purified through belief and baptism. As Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, if you believe and are baptized, you will be saved. And friends, if you have not been, if you have not become a Christian, we want to invite you right now. We are ready to hear your confession of your belief in Christ and your readiness to repent of your life of sin. And we are ready to help you be baptized for the remission of those sins. You can come up out of that water, as the Bible says, a new creature, a new creation. You can begin your priestly service and have the assurance that either if you die or if Jesus comes back, you'll have been found to be faithfully serving in the house of God. Friends, if we can help you obey the gospel and baptism this morning, or if you have another spiritual need, come forward right now. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.